Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. For everyone who only just arrived, a quick synopsis. If you came late and missed the commotion, and you wonder what was all that, here's the recap. Sound of gathering and trembling of notes. I assure you there's a... I sort of feel like we need that, but we needed to cover about 20 years of human history. Things have been happening very fast. 20 years went by very fast. Things that never had existed before exist today at sizes almost uncontemplated. I mean, the idea that 3 billion people would be doing anything, and in this case, it would be the bidding of Mark Zuckerberg, or at least making themselves available to Meta, is just, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, that was incomprehensible. So we're going to approach today's topic, which obviously is kind of the the latest bad moment for Twitter, the possible rise of threads as an alternative to Twitter. We're going to approach this with a certain amount of humility because it's really, really hard to understand all this stuff. When I teach it, I realize I don't understand it and I can't get my class ready in a short amount of time. Uh, and, and it doesn't get less complicated. It gets more complicated. A little bit later uh, in the show, we are going to talk about whether or not social media as currently conceived, really should be what we use. In other words, huge companies presided over by maladjusted billionaires. It doesn't really seem like a recipe for for a happy commonwealth. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then towards the end, we'll talk about what happens when some of these things, some of these platforms, and not just the social media platforms, but yeah, the social media platforms, if they go defunct, if they disappear, you know, you basically have been driving across a bridge and you didn't know how it was made. And it turns out <laughs> that the bridge is disappearing behind you as you drive. Uh, what, so what gets lost? Uh, what gets lost when things stop working the way they used to and you haven't backed them up in any particular way? But yes, just to give us sort of an overview of the present moment, uh, joining us now is Shannon McGregor, an associate professor at the Husman School of Journalism and Media and a senior researcher with the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks so much for joining us today on this very confusing day, a long string of confusing days behind it and probably proceeding from it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, um I don't know which one of us should quickly try to summarize what happened. I'll just do a quick summary of what's happened so far in the Elon Musk era of Twitter, and you can just tell me what I left out. Obviously, he buys it for about $44 billion. Turns out its book value is around $20 billion, a little bit confusing. Uh, changes content moderation policies, claims he's kind of going to open up the doors of the saloon and let everybody in and have it, you know, all be sort of just a, a free for all. But it, it also turns out he actually has agendas. He will privilege certain kinds of speech over other kinds of uh, speech. He will ban accounts. He will put strange labels on things, calling NPR state funded media, for example. Lately, there have been this, this series. <clears throat> 
a very odd zigs and zags, uh, as some of the uh, metrics show, uh, a di- a, a diminishing traffic on Twitter. Meanwhile, suddenly users are suddenly told that they, they've exceeded their rate limit for tweets. They can't read any more tweets unless they get blue check marks. There was the whole thing with blue check marks. I didn't even go through all that. Um, and it, it seems lately, Shannon, as though he's becoming more and more erratic and and I, I'm wondering, as you look at Twitter, if there's stuff bothering you, is it the way that Twitter is actually operating in front of your eyes, or is it more the sense that there's this guy running it who doesn't really know how to run a social media company? He's just like some French child king, you know, issuing weird edicts which everybody has to obey, or both. Right. I mean, I think we've seen it become less safe uh, because, you know, for some of the reasons that you have already mentioned, uh, also because he's used his, you know, sort of massive platform uh, to boost his own attacks uh, on people, including, you know, uh, former employees (laughs) who are not necessarily, you know, public figures like him. Um, And so I think, you know, the combination of those things, plus many of the things that you stated before, I think is one of the reasons that, you know, people like me uh, and myself included, who used to think about Twitter uh, a lot every day in terms of using it and opening the app on my phone, uh, have just done it less and less. Yeah, on the other hand... There, there is a way in which Twitter is still kind of seductive and kind of attractive. You get up in the morning and you want a very quick, easy to thumb through snapshot of reality. Uh, and and so for a long time, Twitter, in terms of the way that it, you know, it, it was a home for journalists, for politicians, for scientists, uh, you, you mm-hmm. could you could for for creative people, you could sort of very quickly kind of get at least a, a somewhat filtered sense of what was going on. And and that I think that's going to be difficult to replace if it turns out that Twitter just isn't viable that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're describing is what was sort of magic about Twitter, which was that you could get this synopsis of all sorts of different things because so many different types of people were in the same place. Um, and the different platforms that we've seen, you know, emerge that that folks have tried have not been able to sort of recreate that same uh, magic of the shared space. It was never perfect, but it did provide a lot of benefits. Right. I mean, you can open up a new club that's easier to get into and less crowded than Studio 54. But the problem is everybody's at Studio 54 and you want to be where everybody is. And that's been one of Twitter's big advantages. I mean, that's always been a little bit of a mirage. Everybody Mm -hmm. isn't there. Twitter doesn't have, has never had the kind of user base that, say, Facebook did. Uh, But a certain kind of everybody everybody was there. And, And so, yeah, so why not be there, too, and find out what they're saying? Yeah, and I think that's what's made it, you know, have this sort of outsized role. Because like you said, it's never been a huge percent of the population necessarily that's been on it. But journalists were on it. Politicians were on it. You know, cultural and artistic leaders were on it. People behind social movements were on it. And so that, you know, made it this really important place where all those folks interacted. And then, you know, what happened on Twitter became part of the public conversation, became part of the, you know, media story. And then reach so many people who weren't on the platform and shape so many things that didn't have anything to do directly with the platform itself. You know, one thing that people don't seem to talk about too much in the coverage right now, but I mean, just even talking to my own students when I'm teaching, and I don't know if you run into this too, millennials do not necessarily use Twitter. They don't necessarily find it essential. You know, the ones who are planning to become journalists may be a little bit more likely uh, to do this, but um, 
you know, I mean, we have a generation of millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha coming online here. A lot of them are really, really addicted to TikTok. I'm not sure Twitter was ever going to be the kind of fire hose it was from, say, 2010 to 2020. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I teach in a journalism school. So I think about, you know, especially how this impacts the type of you know, news coverage that we're thinking about folks, you know, what platforms do they need to be paying attention to? Um, and I think the lessons, though, from Twitter in terms of how it should shape how we think about the news and what becomes the news can be applied to a lot of those other platforms, TikTok included, you know, which is it is a great place to sort of see what's going on. There are really interesting things that you can find out, but it should never be your assignment editor. No, and and meanwhile, <laughs> what, what we had on the horizon anyway, just if we had needed any further clue that we're in a dying civilization, was these two titans of this world, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, literally proposing to have a physical cage match against one yeah. another. Tina Turner is dead, but the Thunderdome lives on. But it turns out the cage match started early. I mean, in a way, the 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 arrival of threads was the real announcement that these guys are going to go for each other's throats. Tell me a little bit about how that looks to you. Yeah, I mean, so the actual fighting just, you know, I don't know. There's nothing more depressing than to see that on my timeline and realize it's not a joke. Mm -hmm. Like, ugh, I hate this timeline. Um, but in terms of the way Threads is going, you know, I think we've seen uh, Zuckerberg do this time and time again, right, is try and, you know, take out any sort of competition by either creating a platform very similar to it or buying that platform. In this case, buying Twitter is not an option. So he's trying to create, you know, this new thing. And I think, you know, in some ways smartly, I don't think it's going to work the same way, but trying to capitalize on the fact that so many people have been, you know, negatively impacted by Elon's um, leadership, right, at Twitter, that it's really changed the way the platform is, it's a really opportune time for Zuckerberg to try and come after him by launching threads because everyone is looking for a new space to try and recreate that magic. Yeah. And so uh, the the run-up, it's like supposedly the, you know, the biggest app launch in the history of apps, uh, 100 million users, give or take, right, right away. Uh, I mean, very fast. The people who are using it um, are seeing exponential growth, growth of their own followers. You know, some of the bigger names add a, a thousand followers every hour or something. So yeah. it, it is growing very, very fast. You know, one thing that I find astonishing, I mean, look, uh, what you just said is so incredibly true that the biggest problem with Twitter right now is Elon Musk. Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, is its biggest problem. Um, on the other hand, I, I'm a little surprised at the sort of radiance uh, the beaming qualities that people have as they migrate over to threads. It's as if, for example, Frances Haugen never existed. She was the whistleblower who came out two years ago with a lot of internal documents from Meta, basically saying that they amplify hate and extremism. They hurt teenage girls. They, they know they're doing it. That doesn't make them want to stop doing it. Uh, that they, they conceal as much of this kind of stuff as they possibly can. Uh, I mean, she's not the only person ever to say this, but she had an unusual amount of internal, internal documentation of it. So the idea that this is the good place where there's a nice owner, I mean, maybe by comparison to Elon, although I sort of feel like Elon is obviously who he is. You know, Baudelaire said the greatest trick of the devil was persuading us he doesn't exist. And to me, that's a little bit more <laughs> what Zuckerberg does. I I'm, are you surprised at how benign Meta suddenly seems to people? 
Um, I think it is a bit uh, in in comparison to Elon, you know, because if we think to the type of scrutiny, you know, even before Frances Haugen, you know, came out with the Facebook papers, but, you know, the post-2016, you know, Cambridge Analytica, uh, disinformation, all of this has been, you know, I think rightly so, shed a lot of really negative light on Facebook and, and Zuckerberg in particular. And so I think in comparison, he looks like a, perhaps a more benevolent overlord. Uh, but nonetheless, like you said, is still, you know, a person who's making a ton of decisions um, that, you know, are, are affecting millions and billions of people that, don't, you know, doesn't have a lot of responsiveness from the public. I think one of the other things that that means people react differently to threads um, or other sort of products that might, you know, fall under Meta's leadership or control is that it's a, it's a little bit harder to extract ourselves from that completely, right? Not everyone was ever on Twitter. Everyone sort of knew about it, but it was always this rather particular slice of the population. Um, but, you know, tons of people, even, you know, the students in my classes, they're not on Facebook and they don't use it, but they have one because that's where, you know, their aunts or their grandmas are. Um, everyone still has an Instagram. Um, and so I think it's just a lot harder to think about extracting yourself from those platforms. And so adding another platform that sort of falls within that and can be easily tied to it seems easier, right? I think for a lot of people, because those platforms are so much a part of their daily life. Right. And meanwhile, I mean, we've, we've watched these upstart platforms come along as Twitter appeared to be more and more dysfunctional, more desirable to leave. We see Mastodon, Blue Sky, Post. But those, you you pretty much have to build your following from scratch, uh, whereas anyone with a large Instagram following, I mean, first of all, that's the gateway even to get on to threads is an Instagram account. And you can just bring your followers with you. To me, that's one of the more seductive things for somebody. I mean, everybody who was ever thinking about leaving Twitter was essentially saying, I'm going to get in my Conestogo wagon and go out somewhere and start over. This isn't starting over if you have a big Instagram following. Yeah, or even if you decide this is the kind of place where you want to do that, right? I think what makes it, you know, that sort of mitigates a lot of what we think about are these network effects, right, of losing you know, that huge amount of following that you had on a particular platform. Um, I think what makes it, you know, a little bit more complicated is that how do you find those people or, or those followers if that was a different space for you? So, for example, like, I have a pretty good following on Twitter and my Instagram is pretty personal, right? And so, like, I'll have some followers on there, right, if I migrate into threads, but it hasn't been the same sort of space for me. And I think that's true of a lot of people as well. Uh, especially when we're thinking about comparing what people use Twitter for versus what they use Instagram for and how that translates into what they want to use threads for. Yeah. And Adam Masseri, the executive within Meta in charge of threads, is essentially said that's fine with him. He doesn't really think politics and news is what threads is for. He doesn't think kind of in the ways that you're just suggesting that it's a natural feel. He really sees this more as lifestyle, arts, fashion, sports, maybe things like that. Yeah, but what made Twitter special was that it had all of that and, you know, politics and breaking news as well, right? And so having all those things in one space. I also think because it looks inherently so much like Twitter, um, people are going to try and make it a space where it is also about politics and news, whether 
Facebook wants it to be or not. Right. We should say that it looks so much like Twitter that Twitter is threatening to sue. I don't think they're going to get yeah. very far with that case, but but they are they you know they are threatening the, to to go after them in court. So you know, in this just happens to be happening, Shannon, <laughs> a few months before we head into really the heat of an election season, a presidential election season, and we've seen in 2016 and, and afterwards what social media can do to perceptions, to abilities of journalists to cover politicians, uh, to the abilities of politicians to essentially go around the Maginot line and communicate directly to their bases. Nobody ever played this cello better than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we could add to that if we want to like get even less sleep that you know Putin is probably at a point right now where he's thinking that he may be clinging on to power by an even narrower thread Come the fall and winter of this year, and into the into the spring, he's got an even bigger interest probably in seeing Donald Trump get elected president. I mean, I assume this should all make us very nervous about these particular megaphones, the way they've been used in the past. Yeah, I think it should make us nervous, and I also think though it's really you know so many things have changed at the same time, right? Twitter is not the same space that it was. Um, you know, in the sort of pre-Elana era uh, with this election coming up. It doesn't have the same sort of pull. It doesn't have the same audience, um, you know, even for someone like Donald Trump where he said, you know, start using his reactivated account. Um, what is going to be the new one? You know, it seems like so far Trump himself at least has been pretty committed to using his own uh, social platform um, and not and not really sort of gracing the presence very much of others. Um, but, you know, if Threads takes off, what's that going to look like, you know, as it shapes and comes into thinking about the 2024 election? Um, you know, Trump's use of Twitter was also really important because it you know, he was able to use it to change the media story, to get tons of media coverage that he might not have otherwise. Um, it doesn't have that same impact any longer. Um, and so, you know, it's really interesting to think about what, you know, is there something else that's going to take that place? Um, how is it going to look different? Because our platforms are sort of a little bit more spread out right now. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm really going to be paying attention to uh, as we, like you said, roll into the heavy election season soon. Yeah, and I think the spread out platforms are kind of a double-edged sword, right? There's a way in which it's a little bit comforting to think, well, the way that, say, Donald Trump used Twitter or the way that the Russian government attempted to use Facebook, uh, that would be diluted a bit if, in fact, people were using a lot of different things, that there was sort of a pluriverse um, on the other hand, for journalists, I mean, those of us who are journalists, we want to get the word out. We want to get our analysis in front of people. We want to be able to link to our articles uh, in, in an environment where a lot of people will click on those links. And so, I don't know. On the one hand, you dilute the power of demagogues, but you may also dilute the power of journalists, right? Yeah, and and sort of by extension, I think dilute the power of, you know, folks to know what other people are thinking, whether that's directly, you know what I mean, by being in a shared space together or by, you know, watching or reading or listening to news coverage that translates some of that for you, right? When we have these sort of really segregated and and separated online platforms where it's hard to get a pulse of what's going on, I think that is one of the things that, you know, as as dangerous and powerful as it could be, it also means that we have a little bit less knowledge about what the folks who at least want to share their opinion about things are doing. Um, That's brought us good things and it's brought us bad things, but it is always important and good to know. 
Yeah, and uh, you, you've written about this in Neiman Journalism, Journalism Lab, this whole question of, I mean, at a certain point, it became pretty important if you were going to be a journalist and really going to make your mark, at least in certain kinds of areas, to have a significant Twitter pre- presence, to be good uh-huh. at promoting your work in that way. Internally, within places like the New York Times, there were also conversations going on about like how big of a personality you want to be, how much you want to drive engagement to your stuff by using kind of heated personal language in a way that maybe isn't super comfortable for the New York Times elders. Um, <laughs> you know, there's all of this stuff going on. And and, and there's almost a sense in which journalists didn't really know what kind of bargain they were driving with Twitter. They just knew they, they had to function well within it. Can you say a little bit more about that, though? Yeah, I mean, it became really important both for journalists to gather information, but also to share it. It made, you know, was just one of the ways in which it made journalists uh, more of an individual brand rather than just a person, you know, who was affiliated with, say, a particular organization like The New York Times. One of the ways that you can, you know, uh, have a successful career as a journalist uh, was because you could have a big Twitter following, right, that you would be able to bring to the readership or viewership or listenership of of a place that might want to hire you. Um, And, you know, I think that provided a lot of benefits in terms of perhaps trying to extend a bit the types of people who could be journalists, the different pathways to get there. Um, But I think that that era, at least for now, is largely over or at least mitigated until, you know, we sort of see what goes on with these different platforms and how those shape journalism and how journalism, uh, you know, sort of continues to go forward without this large presence of Twitter in the room, certainly at least not in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think the the reason that Twitter worked the way it did, though, was there were journalists there and a lot of other people, too, celebrities and scientists and politicians themselves, politicians who were really good at using Twitter and personalizing their own voices. And then there were just people because obviously we still need people to talk to. <laughs> um, and I mean, to me, I'm looking around. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next uh, if I want to go somewhere. I I'm turning 69 this year. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I have to go on too many more <laughs> social media platforms. I could just sort of wait to die or something. But um, but I don't know. As I look at something like Post, you know, it's got some of the things that I would like. Uh, on the other hand, I, my fear is I would just be talking to a lot of other journalists and having a lot of other journalists talk to me. And that isn't really the crowded saloon that we want to be in, right? Right. I think that's true. And, you know, I can't remember at the, off the top of my head now who said it, but I try and think about this all the time. Comparison is the thief of joy. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is what it's going to be with Twitter for a lot of us for a while, right, is, is wanting to have what uh, we had from Twitter in its heyday um, in a different in a different platform. Um, and, you know, I'll admit to myself looking uh, probably back on that with a little bit of a rose colored uh, lens rather than understanding and, and thinking about all the complications that we also had uh, during that time as well. Yeah. I mean, I do the same thing. And one thing we have to remind ourselves is, yes, for things like Black Lives Matter and Arab Spring, it was really important. But mm-hmm. really, the yo-yo ma of this cello was Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump was the best person at using it, best in quotes, I guess, that should tell us something. I mean, we should be a little less right. nostalgic. Uh, Shannon McGregor is an associate professor at the Husband School of Journalism and Media and the senior researcher with the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, we'll be back with more.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Well, yeah, some of us have enjoyed as much of this as we can stand. The question is, should we go try to enjoy something else? And what should that something else be? And should it be owned by a capricious, dysfunctional billionaire? Here to answer that question, question, I kind of loaded it up a certain way, is Ethan Zuckerman, uh, Associate Professor of Public Policy, uh, Communication and Information at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He's also the author and founder of the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. Um, so, uh, Ethan, welcome to our conversation. It's great to be with you. I'll do my best not to be capricious. <laughs> no, you can be capricious as long as you're not a billionaire. Uh, but just well, be- I'm definitely not a billionaire. That's what you happens when you uh, teach for a state university. So right. at least I'm safe on that front. So you didn't hear this conversation with Shannon, but one of the things that I said right away is, you know, the migration from Musk uh, to Zuckerberg seems like, you know, I mean— you know, I quoted the the Baudelaire, famous Baudelaire quote, the trick of the devil is persuading us that he doesn't exist. I mean, Zuckerberg, we know how Meta operates. It doesn't operate in a more honorable way necessarily than Twitter. So maybe we should stop throwing in our lot with these people. I, I, out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Yeah. I mean, we're literally going from – uh, one billionaire who has a, a a real terrible practice right now of free speech, which seems to mean right wing speech, silencing uh, a lot of dissident voices in India, allowing all sorts of government control over the Twitter platform. But we know in the past, uh, Zuckerberg collects amazing amounts of information about his users. We know that the platform has done a very poor job in the past of uh, protecting users in languages and cultures that Facebook doesn't know very well. We know that it was manipulated by the government of Myanmar uh, to participate in the, the genocide of the Rohingya people. So, you know, this is not the guy that I would necessarily choose to run my social network. Right. Uh, and. and- as, as I was saying to Shannon, we know from the Francis Haugen stuff that at times Facebook actually amplifies those problems rather than trying to quell them. So what's the, what are our alternatives here? What's an alternative? This is your specialty. What's an alternative that makes sense, that takes us out of the orbit of these guys? 
Sure. Well, let me say my goal is not to, you know, sort of fix Twitter with one new social network to rule them all. Mm -hmm. I think that's the wrong way to go. The truth is we all have different societies, different groups of people that we interact with, and we have different rules for interacting with all those different groups. When I'm hanging out with my friends from high school, we probably have a different set of rules of the road than when I'm hanging out with people who live in my neighborhood or maybe people who go to my church. So you need social media to have different spaces and different rules for different conversations. And my lab refers to this as the pluriverse, sort of a universe that has lots of little universes within it. The platforms that help us kind of think about the pluriverse, one is Reddit, which is going through its own really hard times right now. Its CEO seems to be taking uh, a lesson from the Elon Musk playbook. But Reddit is a whole bunch of spaces that are organized around topic. So if you adopt greyhounds, my wife and I have a greyhound, you might hang out on r slash greyhound and talk about these strange, funny dogs that live in your house. If you are a type 1 diabetic, as I am, you might hang out and get diabetes advice on the community around diabetes. And so those can be very healthy, largely self-governing communities that are based around topic. The other network that is really meeting a lot of people's needs right now is Mastodon. And Mastodon is a Twitter alternative. It's trying to do what Twitter did in giving you sort of a big room, like a room where you can talk about almost any topic with any number of people. But rather than having a single server controlled by Elon Musk, it has lots of different servers and each of them could have slightly different rules associated with it. It's a lot like Twitter, but it's not governed by a single individual, which is both a very good thing and unfortunately probably very confusing for people trying to figure out how to use it. Yeah, I'd like to get to those those two things. I mean, uh, I'm thinking back to Clay Shirky's book, Here Comes Everybody, where one of the points that he makes is ease of use is an incredibly important factor in the mm. adoption of any technology. The easier something is to do, the more people do it. Um, so one of the things that Twitter and Facebook kind of figured out is how to make this easy enough so the non-tech savvy person could figure out how to do it. Now, how do some of these new alternatives stack up against that? Well, I mean, unfortunately, they don't stack up that well. And, and in many ways, that's the problem. Um, so let's put Reddit aside for the moment. It's fun to talk about when we talk about topics. But just as far as the sort of sheer, I want to, you know, write a couple hundred characters at a time and follow some people, you know, Mastodon has been around since 2017. And it's probably got a couple of million active users. And the reason for that is you can't just join Mastodon. You have to figure out which server you're joining. And on some of those servers, you have to get permission to join it. Um, Blue Sky, which is being put together by Jack Dorsey, it's trying to do something very similar to Twitter, but it's an invitation-only community, and it's probably in the hundreds of thousands at this point. When Instagram, you know, launched threads, uh, what, late last week, they got 70 million users within 24 hours. They become bigger than any of these other alternatives within 24 hours. And of course, they're cheating, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. They already have uh, 1.5 billion installed Instagram users. So when you think about getting 70 million, you're actually not getting a huge percentage of your users, but you're starting from such a huge advantage. 
So it's very hard to know whether some of these alternatives, which with something like Mastodon is actually owned and controlled by the community, whether they're going to be able to compete. I mean, when you talk about the pluriverse too, I, I want to make sure that I understand it. One of the things that I picture is sort of a deck, you know, where maybe a lot of this stuff would flow in. In other words, maybe I would subscribe to Mastodon and Post and two or three other things, and 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 maybe even ideally, what I'd want because the world is changing anyway, uh, is some of the newsletters I subscribe to might become able to come in there, or maybe. Uh, you could snip some things from podcasts that you really like a lot and put those in there. I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're picturing uh, when you talk about the Pluriverse? Well, we're not just picturing it. We're actually building it. Mm -hmm. So over in our lab at UMass, we're building a piece of software called Gobo. And at its first incarnation, Gobo lets you take your Twitter feed, your Reddit feed, your Mastodon feed, and put them in the same, as you were saying, deck. You know, we would say client. It gives you a program on your phone or on your laptop, and you're able to get all those things in the same place. You can post to any of them. And most importantly, you have control over the algorithm. You can make a decision, hey, you know what, today I mostly want to see funny posts, or no, I'm serious today, give me mostly verified news. Our feeling is that you as the user should really have control over how you use these tools. And this is one of the things that's very disturbing about Threads is that Threads has no option um, to get what people call a, a reverse chronological, just a list of all the posts that your friends have made. If you go onto Threads, actually you have an enormous amount of Instagram influencers, uh, internet famous people who you might not have chosen to hear from, but who Threads wants you to hear from. So we want to put that power back in people's hands. Now, here's the problem with this. We've been trying to build this tool for several months now. Both Twitter and Reddit have shut down their APIs, which is basically the way that we would interface with them and make our client work. So we thought we would be able to do this. We thought we would be able to give you a tool like that. At this point in time, there are some massive barriers to us being able to build that piece of software. Yes, I mean... Uh... You're sort of a third-party app, but like not inside the app or something. The way that you're describing it, I mean, Twitter kind of went to war with its with its so-called third-party apps, right? And and Reddit has done the same. Yeah. And it's this very strange moment. They're saying that it's actually about AI. They're worried about OpenAI scraping them, but it also has the effect of saying if I want to create a third-party client where I can sort the media whatever way I want, where I have control over my own privacy, um, neither Twitter nor Reddit right now seem very inclined to let that happen. But, but let me throw another wrinkle uh, in all of this. What if something like Connecticut Public Radio were running one of these spaces? There's actually nothing that stops your public radio station from starting up a Mastodon node for the community of people who are listening to your show or who are listening to Connecticut Public Radio programming more broadly, that would be very much uh, a pluriverse sort of approach to these things. You might want to be on threads for your high school friends. You might want to be on Twitter to get a sense for what's going on politically. But to have a civic discussion in Connecticut, you might want something more local. We're actually doing that right now in Amherst, Massachusetts with Amherst Community Media, our local access TV station, 
we're running uh, a special type of Mastodon node called a small town node uh, designed for local conversations about housing and other issues within our community where housing is one of our uh, most serious problems. It, it really is uh, fascinating what you're suggesting. And, and in a way, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. We're talking about some fairly precious commodities when we, we talk about sort of the, the digital equivalent of the town square where people are going to talk. Uh, people are going to share ideas. People are going to maybe share their emotions at times. And so to have it as commercialized as it is, what we know what happened. What happened was an advertising-based model took over. Uh, and an advertising-based model stresses engagement and engagement. Engagement is usually driven by a kind of visceral, heated language, really the more confronta confrontational and negative you are at times, um, the more engagement you drive. So that begins to be the thing that the algorithms prize. And I guess what you're suggesting is a lot of this stuff is too valuable to turn it over to a process like that. There ought to be a different kind of process that maybe does somewhat resemble what we think of as public media. Well, that's exactly right. And, and so in much of the world um, – news is considered too important to leave it entirely up to the market. And you have pretty strong government subsidies to make sure that the BBC or Deutsche Welle or any number of other outlets guarantee some sort of basic factual basis. Um, in our country, we're much closer to voluntary media. Uh, it's mostly supported the people listening to the station and other public radio stations who are making that possible. We may need to think about whether we need either public media or voluntary media to create spaces for civic media, to create spaces where we can have a conversation about local issues, about state issues, where what wins is not the most outrageous point of view, but we could actually have a conversation that works really hard to be civil and works hard to listen to one another. There are a lot of experiments with heavily moderated community spaces, things like Front Porch Forum, which has been enormously successful in Vermont in building moderated and highly civil spaces where people do have meaningful local conversations with one another. All right. This is a to-be-continued thing. Uh, we're not going to solve this problem today, but this has been really, really interesting. Uh, Ethan Zuckerman is an associate professor of public policy, communication, and information at UMass at Amherst, also the author and founder uh, of the uh, Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. You check that out. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a little break, and then we're going to talk about what happens when things that where you've been storing stuff or anybody's been storing stuff don't work anymore. I called you anytime at all I guess I took too much for granted I never thought I'd lie awake and sigh Where are you now that I need you Now that I love you so madly I could die Time to say a couple of thank yous. One of them is to Kat Pastor, the technical producer of this episode and most of our episodes. And Lily Tyson, who's our senior producer, is also the producer of this particular episode. So when I teach about this and I teach ineptly about th these particular kinds of topics, there are a couple of points that I try to make. One of them is I don't know that we've ever dealt with 
technology that so much penetrated our lives and that we understood so poorly and which was regulated so inadequately. One of the things these companies are really good at and very dedicated to is not being regulated. Uh, meanwhile, I feel as though it's a kind of technology that we don't understand very well. One, of the, one thing I'll say to my students is if you came up to a, a bridge that was spanning a big mighty river and, and there was a sign that said this bridge was built entirely using instructions and knowledge found on Wikipedia. Would you drive across that bridge? And most of them say they wouldn't. Uh, and then I say, well, think about all the things that you do use Wikipedia for. Um, not that Wikipedia is a bad thing, not that it doesn't work or anything like that, but you don't really think very much about what it is and how it works. Uh, so joining us to talk about one aspect of that is William Kilbride, executive director of the Digital Preservation Coalition. Uh, and obviously one of the things that we're thinking about now is what happens when things go away and what happens to all of the things that you typed in to that thing if that thing goes away. So William Kilbride, welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you today, Colin. It's great uh, to be with you and it's great to have heard those earlier contributions uh, also. So Twitter's probably not going to collapse. Elon Musk, Musk is worth $200 billion. If he wants to pump $10 billion a year into Twitter to keep it going, then it'll just keep going. This doesn't run like a normal business. But things do collapse or they stop working. Sometimes almost – I was reading uh, your report on this uh, and you know there are technologies that you don't really even think yeah. about that much like some Adobe you know, macro media thing that just doesn't work yeah. anymore and therefore – Things that are in it or are dependent on it can't run anymore. Could you just say a little bit more about how that overall landscape looks? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right, Colin. I mean, right back to the beginning here, digital resources like the bridge that you described, they don't just stay up. The bridge doesn't just stay up. They need active management, active preservation. And that's the, the space, really, that the digital preservation community occupies. You, you mentioned Adobe uh, as a good example, Adobe Flash, of course, uh, a very popular technology, which has been deprecated now, right? So it no longer works. It's provided uh, lots of sleepless nights for cybersecurity people over the years. And as a consequence, they no longer promote that. And so you find yourself with great resources, which are kind of locked into perhaps a proprietary format or a format that uh, can no longer be executed. And, you know, you find yourself and difficulties. Now, you know, early thoughts, digital preservation, early thoughts, people immediately turn to storage, they immediately turn to kind of long-lived storage devices, and that's a, a fair question. Talk to also think about file formats, you think about how the data is encoded, and that really, really matters as well. But, but I think what we've learned over the years in our work is that uh, in addition to those concerns, it's the, the strange fluctuating needs of businesses that have turned out to be a big risk in the digital space. The huge platforms owned and serviced by the dysfunctional billionaires, uh, as described uh, earlier uh, in the show. And there's lots of, lots of examples of this, uh, some of them good, uh, some of them bad. It's interesting, someone commented to me at the weekend whether uh, Twitter was having a MySpace uh, moment, <laughs> you know, social media companies like MySpace, have, have had a short uh, life cycle. Uh, but in any, in any case, if you really want to see a digital dark age, it's not the short list of file formats or storage media that have become unreadable. It's more likely to be found in the long list of companies that have folded and technologies that have been withdrawn, like you know, GeoCities or Bebo or Delicious, and the list goes uh, on and on. And these are not small, right? Friendster, 8 million users at its height. MySpace, over 100 million users 
uh, at its uh, core. So there's been, you know, there, we've been down this road uh, before. So one of the exciting things about the digital revolution is that a lot of things that used to be spoken and presumably lost or even just thought and never said aloud got typed out. Uh, they got typed on, onto, as you say, all kinds of different platforms, some of which we still have and some of which we don't. But one thing that I notice, for example, on Twitter is I follow an awful lot of um, accounts belonging to scientists, particularly scientists and public health officials, officials who've been part of this large, complicated, ever-changing debate about COVID-19. This was a disease that we didn't understand very well at the at first and, and through some very, very high-speed trial and error within the world of science, became to different sets of understandings as we went along. And, and I think to your point, I mean, let's say that, I don't know, Elon Musk got a mistress and she didn't like Twitter and he just decided to shut the whole thing down. Um, there's a lot there that's probably irretrievable. It probably is stuff that was just spoken orally at scientific uh, conferences 30 years ago. But the truth is, yeah. it is sort of written down and it is imperiled. So what do we do about that? How, how do we archive it so that we don't lose it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an easy question, to be honest. And there's lots of different parts you could you could take to this. So I'm OK. The first piece of advice you're going to get immediately you're going to get is, you know, you can download your archive. You can certainly do. And by the way, listeners, you know, tune in, go and figure out if you've got Twitter, go and figure out how to get that archive that it's a place to start but it's full of holes right it's full of holes and it's full of silences links will break users might not be there pictures and chat uh, will likely be lost chains of comments and discussions will be lost also the chain of custody will be lost we ain't able to show and guarantee that this was your twitter feed at a, a particular time and i think it's interesting but the earlier conversation people also seem as much interested in porting their community uh, as porting uh, their content, the connectedness is certainly important, you know, and the, the way in which Twitter reveals that connectedness between these comments and between the participants in the conversation, I think is is unique, uh, perhaps, uh, in terms of, so, at least in terms of what social media uh, uh, does. Uh, that's a unique feature, I think, of our uh, uh, the kind of conversation, uh, as you describe it. So it, it's not you know, social media brings to the fore some of the real issues around the preservation of content. Much of the content is created by users and transactions between users. It's not like a publishing company or a TV company where the content is owned. Uh, it's not Twitter's content, really. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's kind of our content, too. And it's interesting that the conversation turns to some extent then to what do we do about making it uh, in public ownership. Uh, what if a water company or a train company or an electrical company went so badly, they would likely be taken into public uh, ownership. So the, the relationship to, for example, Twitter and public broadcasters, I think is a really interesting one. Well, also, there are other kinds of platforms that are of similar interest. And uh, yeah. one of the things that I do when I want to upset Lily Tyson, the producer you've been dealing with, uh, is because uh, she and I are communicating right this minute on Slack in real time during this show. Slack's an yeah. interesting thing. You know, companies are increasingly dependent on it for a kind of real time communication. What would happen either if it, I mean, and we just don't, I mean, it's a new company. You don't know, or relatively new company. We don't know that much about it. For example, if I were in a lawsuit or the FBI was trying to get my stuff, could Slack provide it? <laughs> could Slack answer a subpoena without my consent? Uh, and there's all this stuff that we don't really understand. But if Slack were to suddenly disappear, once again, you've got a tremendous amount of information that just goes into a vortex. 
that that's that's exactly right, and that would potentially be lost. And and you know, even providing those questions when the company is alive, even providing a kind of authenticated version of a, a Slack channel or a Twitter set of transactions is not straightforward. Uh, even harder to do in the context of the the company uh, no longer trading, no longer uh, existing. And and you know, you might think to yourself. Well, actually, this is just a record of a transaction. What really matters is the, the what happens in, in the real world. You know, a lot of Twitter is just a link, you know, links posted to news releases, links posted uh, to articles. Uh, except, again, it's a social graph. It shows how these things connect and who they were connected to. And sometimes, you know, Slack, sometimes Twitter, sometimes it is the news. You know, uh, the example of, of Trump obviously comes to mind uh, in this uh, context where they're not simply just reporting the news. They are uh, the news. And those transactions are, uh, you know, are, need to be stand up to, to scrutiny. And what do we lose? What do we lose? We lose accountability. We lose honesty. We lose witness. We lose transparency. We, these are not small things. These are these are huge things, and they seem to be at the risk from the whim of billionaires uh, and massive but invisible flows of capital flo- fluctuating. Uh, you know, overnight. Yeah, and I'm I'm sort of out of time here, but I do want to say the history of disasters is that we see them rushing towards us and we don't do anything, and, and that Connect. seems and, and and you know that that seems. I mean, we even just recently tweet deck stopped working. Uh, oh man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- it seems as though there are warnings all the time, but I sense that your job motivating people to care about this stuff is, is maybe the hardest part of that job. You got about thirty seconds to uh, invade yeah. about that. I mean, absolutely right. It's really important to pay attention to who gets to decide what to goes in the archive, who gets to decide. Never be more important. Our world of deep fakes and artificial intelligence. Never be more important to have authentic uh, uh, and authoritative records uh, of who's making decisions and why. All right. William Kilbride is the executive director uh, of the Digital Preservation Coalition. I really encourage you to go over there today. Uh, take a look at the report, too. There's, you're going to see some names and things there, some memories that will come back to you uh, and it'll scare, maybe scare you. Ideally, it'll scare you a little bit. All right. Thanks for listening to today's show. Thanks to Lily again and to Kat. And we will be back for more shows this week. <laughs> 